But I, I wonder how St. Patrick would go about trying to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. He was the man who took the gospel over to Ireland. Well, we're going to find out now by introducing two uh, friends of mine, Donald and Connell. So hopefully this will go. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai... Obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. Well, Carolyn did enjoy that, didn't you? Yeah, that's good. 
farmers, so Patrick. But again, again this is okay. Well, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I decided to enter the computer age, and so we visited the local bookstore to see if there were any books that might help us to master those skills which now any elementary school student have. And we did, in fact, come across such a book, and the title said it all, Windows for Dummies. Now, without uh, doubt, this was the book for us. Because in relatively simple terms, the mysteries of word processes began to be unraveled. How grateful we were for Windows for Dummies. Well, the documents called creeds are a bit like that. And the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And what is called the Nicene Creed, which is used in many churches, including our church back home, its uh, full title is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which sounds like a, a variety of Italian ice cream. This is one such document. And the original Nicene Creed proper was formulated in 325, and then it was expanded in Constantinople in 381. Now, the purpose of the creeds was not to say everything about what Christians believe, but rather to help Christians to get a handle on the basics, especially when it comes to thinking about God as Trinity. Now, these creeds were very carefully, thoughtfully put together for two main reasons. The first was to express the essentials of the Christian faith, what all Christians believed everywhere. And that is why they're sometimes referred to as the Catholic creeds, in the sense of being universal. Like when we say we have Catholic taste in music. The second reason was to counter wrong views about the Christian faith, which would soon lead people into a different religion altogether. And so there was a drawing of the boundaries of faith, delineating orthodoxy. So the early church, you see, had a straight choice. Creeds or chaos. Now, thankfully, they chose creeds. Well, by the time the Bible was complete, the, it, uh, when it came to beliefs about God, Christians everywhere shared some basic convictions. The first is that there is only one God. You believe there is one God, says the Apostle James. Second, salvation has a threefold source. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2. To God's chosen people, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ sprinkled with his blood. Thirdly, Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul writes that Jesus' human ancestry can be traced way back to Abraham and that this, quote, Christ is God over all, forever praised, amen. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. But also, everyone believed that the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, you remember through Mark's class when he, he went through the book of Acts, you came to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
And uh, these, this couple in the early church decided to sell some property. And they kept some of the money back for themselves and yet claimed they'd given it all to the church. And that is when the apostle Peter first says to Ananias, you have not lied to men but to God. And then when he's popped his clogs, he's died, then his wife comes in, Sapphira, and Peter says, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Okay, you've lied to God, you've tested the spirit of the Lord. So the spirit is also God. But also, we, the Christians believe that the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Holy Spirit. They're all distinct, and yet one as God. Hence that grace of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, so far, so good, you may think. However, you would not be surprised to discover that all of this proved to be a bit of a brain teaser for the early church in trying to figure out how all this fitted together. You would also not be surprised to learn that very early on, some folks started to go off the theological rails. So, for example, some said that the father... The Son and the Spirit were but different names for the same person. Like Melvin Tinker, the vicar, and the pastor of St. John Newland are different names for me. And that heresy, as Donald and Connell told us, is called modalism. Or modalistic monarchianism. Or Sibelianism, after Sibelius who taught this in Rome in the 3rd century. But others taught that Jesus only became God, God's son, by adoption after the resurrection. Well, this was another heresy, and this is called adoptionism, or dynamic monarchianism. And so you can see why it was so important to get down to some serious thinking about how basic beliefs could be put together in such a way that it expressed and made sense and was faithful to the scriptural revelation. Now, when I studied theology at Oxford University, uh, one of my tutors was a Jesuit priest who resided at a college called Campion Hall. And uh, as I climbed the stairway leading to his room every Wednesday afternoon for my tutorial, to learn the sort of things that Mark is teaching you about, church history, the apostolic uh, church fathers, I used to pass a large painting of a man and a small boy on the beach by the sea. And this painting uh, portrayed a story which went like this. One day, the great 4th century theologian, Bishop Augustine of Hippo, was doing some work on the Trinity. And as he walked along the beach one day in order to clear his mind, he came across a small boy who was pouring seawater into a hole in the sand. And Augustine stood there and he watched the little boy for some time and then he asked, what do you think you're doing? Why, said the boy, I'm just pouring the Mediterranean Sea into this hole. Don't be silly, said Augustine. You can't fit the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, into your hole. You're wasting your time. 
To which the little boy retorted, well, so you're wasting your time trying to write a book about God and the Trinity. One smart boy. Well, this apocryphal story does, however, make an important point. Namely, that as mere humans, we can never get God completely taped. Any more than a little boy can get the whole of the Mediterranean Sea into a hole in the beach. However, it doesn't mean to say that it's not worthwhile attempting some understanding of God. After all, I guess it could be said that the boy did manage to get some of the Mediterranean Sea into his little hole. Well, likewise, we might at least expect to know something of God, if not everything, about him. Especially since it is God who has taken the initiative to make himself known to us by special revelation, which is what we have in the scripture. And this is precisely what some of the early church fathers tried to do with varying degrees of success. Now, one of the earliest uh, men that God raised up to uh, accomplish this task was this man called Tertullian. Uh, He was a layman who... uh, lived in a place called Carthage, located on the North African coast, between 160 and 220 AD. Now, to tell you, was one of those rare individuals who seemed to be able to do anything. Does that remind you of anybody? He was a lawyer by profession. And he also had some learning in medicine and military affairs. He was quite a whiz kid. But during his early life, he was a bit of a waster, only having come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ later on in life. However, he made up for those lost years in quite a remarkable way. He wrote in Latin, and so he's sometimes referred to as the father of Latin Christianity. Now, Tertullian had to deal with the teaching of a man called Praxius. We know nothing about him except what Tertullian tells us. Now, Praxius appeared to teach that the Son had no independent existence and that the Father and the Son were really one and the same. Indeed, Praxius is rather crude in the way he portrayed this. He taught that it was God the Father who descended into the virgin's womb in order to become his own son, And so it was God the Father who died on the cross. And this was another heresy called Patripassianism. Uh, And that is the father, Peter, who suffered Passio. And that really is getting you wires crossed, isn't it? For if Jesus is the father, then to whom was Jesus praying while he was on earth? Himself? And as I said, Tertullian came from Carthage, North Africa. But he could just as easily have come from Carthage, Texas. Because his reaction was blunt and straight to the point. He accused Praxius of doing the devil's work in Rome. That's straight talking. That's Texan talk, isn't it? That he had exiled the Holy Spirit and crucified the Father. So just as you don't mess with Texas, you don't mess with good old Tertullian. 
So accordingly, Tertullian set to work laying the foundations of what we know today to be our belief in the Trinity. So this was simply bringing together in a thought-out fashion what the Bible taught. Theology for dummies, if you will. So affirming that God is one, and yet the Father is distinct from the Son and the Spirit. Tertullian gave the church the tools to use in order to piece this biblical picture together. Indeed, he was the first person to use the word trinity, trinitas, with its association of triunity. Not threeness, but three in oneness. He, he also spoke of the essence, or the being, or, the, or substance, substantiae. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all share the same essence, or if you like, that which made them God, their godness. And the names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were not ciphers referring to one God under three different guises, but represent real, eternal distinctions within the Godhead. And Tertullian went on to use a very important term to help us distinguish the way in which God is one in such a way that he's also three. And that term was person, personae. He wrote, the three persons are of one by unity of essence. So as we now sing, do you sing it here? Holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But there were several problems which meant that Tertullian was not completely happy with what he had written, nor for that matter with the rest of the church. Because in Latin, the term person, persona, originally meant a mask. The Greek is prosopon. Which an individual actor would wear to perform a certain part. So you could have one actor, say Tom Cruise, uh, performing several different roles in a single play. He would simply swap the mask according to the character he was playing in a particular scene. It's like today when we speak of someone's persona, okay? Now, I'm sure you can see how this could be so misunderstood when applied to God. It could be taken that there's one single solitary God perceived as a monarch, hence this term monarchianism. But who, according to what he was doing at the time, appeared in different guises. So one moment he's creating the world, so he puts on the mask of the creator, Another moment, he's redeeming the world, and so he puts on the mask of the Redeemer, the Son. Another moment, he's sanctifying his people, so he puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit. But of course, Tertullian didn't mean that at all. In fact, that was precisely what he was opposing in the teaching of Praxius. Later, the term came to mean virtually an individual, as a human person was separate from every other human person. But Tertullian didn't mean that either. (laughs) Because otherwise, you end up with three divine beings. Tritheism. 
So what all of this illustrates, friends, is the limitation of human language as we try and capture and express something wholly unique relating to God. Now, in Tertullian's day, there were three classifications. There were things, like this music stand. Uh, There were animals. And there were persons. Well, God wasn't a thing. God certainly wasn't an animal, so that left persons. And of course, persons are capable of love. They're capable of affection. And the biblical data certainly portrays God in those terms. And so it seemed a logical choice to speak of God in that way. So I think all in all, let's face it, Tertullian did a remarkable job. Well, the next significant figure to appear on the scene was an Egyptian called Athanasius. And in 328 AD, he was appointed Bishop of Alexandria. Now, this was a a guy who was remarkable. For many years, he more or less stood alone, sticking to the belief that Jesus was truly divine when most of the church leadership had abandoned the idea. Sometimes you will come across this description of Athanasius, uh, again a Latin phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, against the world. He said, even if the whole world stands against me, I am sticking with what the Bible teaches. And for his pains, he was exiled five times, fleeing for his life. What a guy. Well, like to tell you, much of his creative the theological work was the result of countering a heretic. This time, a priest from Alexandria called Arius, around 318 AD. Now, Arius was the great, 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 sorry, was the great, great granddaddy, let's get it on there, of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because he taught that Jesus was not eternally the Son of God. His famous statement about the Son of God, which caused such a furor, ran, There was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. For Arius, Jesus was just a creature. Not an ordinary creature, to be sure, but a kind of super creature. Not man, not God. But but the highest kind of creature through whom God related to the world. Well, Athanasius wasn't going to have any of that. And in 325 AD, as a junior minister called a deacon, he and a group of other church leaders, bishops, gathered together. There we are, that's what he said. They gathered together in this place called Nicaea, which is now Iznik, on the west coast of Turkey. And there they produced what came to be known as the Nicene Creed, or the Creed of Nicaea, in 325 AD. Now, the key phrase which nailed the the lid on the coffin of Arius and all his uh, successes ever since, including the JWs, is this declaration. We believe... In one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, that he is of one substance, Uzia, with the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, 
begotten, not made, consubstantial or one of the same substance, homoousios, with the Father. Now, don't worry about those Greek words. I'm going to explain what they mean in a moment. But you get the, you get the point, don't you? Jesus is God. And just to make sure the Arians were completely skewered, an anathema or a curse was added on to that creed. But those who say there was a time when he did not exist, Arius, and before being begotten, he did not exist, Arius, and that he came into being from non-existence, or who allege that the Son of God is another hypostasis or ousier, or who is alterable or changeable, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns. Now this meant that God the Son had always existed and was eternally begotten of the Father. So there never was a time, if there is time in eternity, when he did not exist. What is more, he is of one substance with the Father. That is, it's equally God. Not a different substance like God the Father, but truly God. Now in the Greek, the difference between the two words consists of a difference in one letter, iota, I. For Athanasius, Jesus was same substance, homoousios, with the Father, one. For the compromisers, the so-called semi-Arians, Jesus was homoousios, with the Father, like substance. Illustration. I know the company would not like me saying this, but Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, homoousios, okay, like substance. Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, homoousios, same substance, okay? That's the difference. Now that one letter, the I, makes all the difference in the world. After all, there's only one letter difference between the words theist and atheist. So in the creed, the difference is between Jesus being creator and him being a creature. Now, friends, this is simply the teaching of the Bible. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3, we read these words. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, hypostasis. Now, those two uh, statements balance each other perfectly, each one emphasizing a different aspect of the deity of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, there's this inseparable unity between God the Father and God the Son, for he is the radiance of God's glory. Now, can you imagine a lamp (coughs) being lit without the filament glowing? Or or the sun shining without the rays radiating? Of course not. The two are always together, and so it is here. Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. There never was a moment when the Father existed without the Son. God cannot be glorious without Christ because for he is the radiance of his glory. But that truth, the co-eternal nature of Christ is balanced with what is stressed in that next phrase. 
He is the exact representation of his being. Now, the idea here is of a distinct personhood. That word representation speaks of a precise copy. Like when you stamp a seal in wax. So while sharing the divine nature with the Father, Jesus is not the Father. By his own distinctive personhood, he perfectly mirrors, reflects to us what the Father is like. Note that Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Which means that every aspect of the divine character is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, do we see someone who is tender with the brokenhearted? So is the Father. In Jesus, do we see someone who is total mastery over nature? So does the Father. In Jesus, do we see someone who hates sin and all that corrupts and demeans people and is determined to do something about it? So does the Father. We are not to play one off against the other in our minds. As if God is the, the bullying God of the Old Testament. And Jesus represents the kind God we see in the New Testament. That, in fact, was another heresy called Marcionism. Now, Jesus is, and I like this phrase, he is the human face of God. Jesus is the human face of God. Now, let me say something about this term, <clears throat> hypostasis as it can be a little confusing. At the time of Nicaea in 325, it had a, right, a wide range of meanings, from distinct existence to underlying reality, in which case the term ousia and hypostasis were more or less interchangeable. They were, they were synonymous. But the point being made was that God the Son was of the same nature as God the Father, both having the same divine nature. But in 362 AD, at the Council of Alexandria, Athanasius brought a bit more clarity to the discussion. Here, the applied meaning of hypostasis had changed. So then it was agreed that God is one being, Uzia, substance, and three persons, hypostasia. So that's what the word became, meaning, persons. So God alone is Uzia, personal, active. That belief, as you know, is derived back from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, when God from the, the burning bush reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh, I am. And yet he also reveals himself as possessing within his being relations of three persons, hypostasia. So again, we're back to that great hymn we sing, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, so far, an awful lot has been said about God the Father and God the Son. Not surprising because that was the issue at stake, the identity of Jesus. That was what was being disputed. But what about <clears throat> God the Holy Spirit? The only thing that was said in the Creed Athanasius and others put together in 325 was, we believe in the Holy Spirit, which doesn't say that much. But in 381 AD, another meeting took place in Constantinople. And this was to give us the creed which Anglicans, 
I belong to, uh, use in their communion service, the Nicene Creed or the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed. And here we've got this expanded clause. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And there we have it spelt out for dummies. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has spoken. It is people, persons who speak. The Holy Spirit is God, equal to the Father and the Son, for he is worshipped and glorified with them. We're also told that the Spirit's work, he gives life. Not just natural life, bios, but spiritual life, zoe. That is why one must be born from above, born of the Spirit. He's the agent of revelation. He has spoken through the prophets. And so, in effect, he is the ultimate author of the Bible. He inspired it, literally breathed out God's words. Or he was the breath on which these words traveled. 2 Timothy 3.16. He's also the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Although equal in being, equally God. Nonetheless, there's an order in the Trinity. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That's why he's the Son. But the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, the fact that there is order within the Godhead doesn't mean there's inferiority. It's an order of equals. But it's an order nonetheless. Now, most of uh, what we've been thinking about so far this morning regarding the Trinity uh, has been a result of theologians who were working in the West, the Western Church. But there was a group of theologians in the Eastern Church during the 4th century who had some very valuable insights. They lived in Cappadocia, now modern-day Turkey, and therefore they're referred to as the Cappadocian Fathers. The big three being Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Basil's brother, Gregory of Nyssa. In fact, uh, Mark Lanier's stone chapel is a reconstitution, a reconstruction of, uh, of a 500 AD church in uh, Tomasa, which was in the region of Cappadocia. So this is the kind of place they would have worshipped in. Now, these three theologians were involved in the Council of Constantinople. And these were really the guys that were responsible for putting together that statement about the Holy Spirit. These are the Holy Spirit theologians. In fact, it was Gregory of Nazianzus who stressed that great word which at Nicaea was applied to the Son. Must also, he said, be applied to the Spirit. He said, what then? Is the Spirit God? Most certainly. Well, then he is of the same substance, homoousios. Yes, if he is God. The big idea which came from the Cappadocians was that God could be thought of as a community of three persons, hypostasia. The unity and diversity was maintained by the idea of community and the interrelatedness of the different members. Basil of Caesarea described God as a sort of continuous and indivisible 
community. We may think of it, if you like, as a divine family whose reality is, quote, a new and paradoxical conception of united separation and separated unity. Therefore, God's being is seen as being in personal communion. So what the one true God is towards us, as he's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what is sometimes called the economic trinity, is what he is like within himself, the essential trinity. God is persons in relations, which when you think about it, so are we. With the male and female relations in marriage, and especially in sexual union, and becoming one flesh, reflecting that kind of Trinitarian unity, unity and distinction. Uh, some theologians, like uh, Karl Barth, argue that the, 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 the male-female picture of being made in God's image is the image to help us understand what God is like. Being made in God's image, Genesis 1:27, male and female, unity and distinction, oneness in relationships. Now, thinking about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've got to think about how they indwell each other. In John chapter 14, verse 10, we read Jesus saying, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father's in me. Now, this reveals the special and intimate nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son, so much to in, that to encounter the one, you encounter the other. If you are in the presence of the Son, you're also in the presence of the Father, for the Son mediates his presence to you. This means that we're not to think of the Father and Son as two sort of individuals who have an independent existence of each other, Rather, their identity, who they are, arises out of the relationship they have. God is Father by virtue of the fact that he is eternally begetting his Son. The Son is Son by virtue of the fact he is eternally begotten the Father. And yet they remain distinct persons. This mutual indwelling which ensures the unity of the Godhead while still respecting their distinctiveness was given a name by these early theologians in the Eastern Church, a name which goes back to uh, John of Damascus uh, later on in the 8th century. And it's called, uh, there's John of Damascus, perichoresis. Now, I'm sure you'll be able to work out what that word means anyway from its construction. Chore, who's into dancing? Choreography? Peri, going around. So we're talking about a, div- a dance, a divine dance. The theologian uh, Maroslav Wolf describes it as coherence in one another without coalescence or co-mixture. That is, they don't get mixed up. The Holy Spirit is the perichoresis of the Father and the Son. Let me explain. This is the way Tom Smale, an English theologian, puts it. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit revealed in God's relating to us, reflects that fellowship within the life of God. 
The Spirit can be seen as the person who mediates, sustains, and enables the love between the Father and the Son, so that by his personal action he both unites them in an inexpressibly close way, but at the same time constitutes himself as the space between them, so that they do not collapse into each other, but remain in the distinct personal integrity over against each other. He goes on to write, this is what we see happening at the baptism of Jesus, where the Father gives himself to the Son in giving him his spirit and remains distinct from the incarnate Son in his heavenly glory. He is thus the Spirit who, by simultaneously relating and maintaining the distinct personhood of the other two, is not reduced to a relationship, but is to be seen as the person who completes and unites the Godhead in his relating to the Father, to the Son. Now, I think this is a lovely picture, and it resonates very much with what Lewis calls, C.S. Lewis calls the Great Dance. Now, I tend to think of this perichoresis of the persons of the Trinity, like the magnificent figure skating of Torval and Dean, when it appears, I think, who in the, uh, there we are, in the 1984 Winter Olympics at Sarajevo became the highest scoring figure skaters of all time, scoring 12 perfect sixes. The bolero, which they're dancing to here, was entrancing. You see, the couple moved together in perfect symmetry, although distinct persons. They actually danced as one, not only between themselves, but with the music. It was pretty well Trinitarian. And that the two persons matched each other perfectly, creating this masterpiece of movement, appearing to be free and yet set. And the music paralleling the the, the Holy Spirit and enabling the two to dance together to the delight of millions. Do you see? It's only a picture. But I think it's a lovely picture. To think of the Trinity as the dance of the divine. Now, the thought may have been going through your mind while I've been speaking. Well, Melvin, this is um, very interesting, but what's he got to do? From the sublime to the ridiculous. What's he got to do with day-to-day living? Well, that's where you'd be wrong. Is there anything more vital than love? Because of the Trinity, Christians can say that God is love, 1 John 4, 16, which you're learning, in a way that the Muslim cannot... And for this reason, for someone to love, you have to have an object to love. So whom did God love before the world and human beings were made? For the Muslim, the answer is no one. And therefore, Allah, who is a singular God, cannot be eternally loved. But the Christian, pointing to the Trinity, can say, of course God is eternally love. For the Father has always loved the Son with a burning intensity. And the Son has has loved the Father with the deepest devotion possible. And all of this united by the love of the Holy Spirit. And what is more, when people become Christians, they're caught up in this great dance of the love. Which exists within the being of the Godhead. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then let me tell you that the Father loves you as much as he loves his Son. So much that he gave uh, his Son for you to, to, to adopt him, you into his family. And the Son loved you so much he gave his life for you 
by dying on the cross. And the Spirit has set his heart upon you and has come into you. And one day he's going to take you up into the very heavens itself. So that you can experience this cascading divine love. Get caught up in that great dance in ever increasing degrees of glory into all eternity. Because God is triune and is love, we can be certain that heaven is completely a place of love too. Since that is where the triune God resides. And because of this truth about the Trinity as the divine community of love, the great Jonathan Edwards can conclude his sermon, Heaven is a place of love, with these words. Let these words wash over you. And all of this in a garden of love, the paradise of God, where everything has a cast of holy love, and everything conspires to promote and stir up love, and nothing to interrupt its exercises, where everything is fitted by an all-wise God for the enjoyment of love under the greatest of advantages. And all of this shall be without fading beauty of the objects beloved, or any decaying of love in the lover, or any satiety in the faculty which enjoys love. Oh, what tranquility may we conclude there is such a world as this. And we can be sure there is such a world because there is such a God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is love. Let me briefly give you a few points for home. First, Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan, contemporary of Shakespeare, said that our view of God shapes us deeply such that we become what we worship. We've seen that God is not cold and static, but warm in grace and overflowing in love. He is an outgoing, loving, life-giving being. And as individuals and as a church, let us seek to become like the one we worship. Second, the Cappadocians thought of God as a community of love. Resolve this week to find ways that you will seek up to seek to build up your church into such a Trinitarian community. And if heaven is a place of love, because there dwells the Trinitarian God who is love, how might you this week through prayer and practice endeavor to see some of that heaven be brought down here on earth. Thank you very much. You've been a very good and very kind congregation. Well, my time is up. I can see that there. I've got my uh, Jim Bowie watch here. I, I got this from the Alamo. They, they assured me he was wearing this at the time. But um, anyway... It, uh, may the Lord bless you all real well. And uh, as I said, I'm over there for some books. But let's just close with a prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are this great triune God who is love. We thank you, Lord, for that wonderful movement of love within your own being from all eternity to eternity. And Lord, we are amazed that sinners though we are, you catch us up in this great divine dance that one day we shall see you we shall be like you. And Lord God, we will love as we are loved. And Father, we thank you for all of these things. For Jesus' sake, amen. Mm-hmm.